everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Citizen Dame, a podcast discussing movies and pop culture led by an all-lady rotating roundtable. I think that's the way to say it. Yes, that sounds good. It rolled off the tongue nicely. Um, I am uh, one of, of, how many are there of us? Four. Four, Four amazing uh, female writers and podcasters. Kristen Lopez here with the fantastic Karen Peterson. Hi. Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello. Uh, so this is uh, essentially pilot part two because we had recorded a pilot originally, didn't really work out. So we're doing this again. Hopefully we are smoother, wiser, cooler. Um, but let's go around the table uh, and explain uh, why why another movie show is entering the landscape. Uh, there's so many amazing movie podcasts. Why do we want people to listen to us yammer? I'm opening that to everybody. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're all girls. That's yes. Right. We're all women. We're all women, and we all actually have opinions on films that maybe tend to get overshadowed uh, or or become the sole, vo- the sole female voice in an all-male group. I know, Kristen, that that's been kind of your thing and what yes. you've talked about in, in forming this. Uh, so, And that's incredibly important, particularly right now in the way that things have been going both in the film world and in the world at large, to actually have women talking about movies but it's true i've been the the female voice of many a podcast uh predominantly run by men uh listened to by men and as as women on the internet we are all aware of how people can be less than uh pleasant when it comes to female opinion about movies um and yet we're such a vital component that is slowly starting to take over the firmament um and oftentimes i know you know, I'm sure somebody else will say this, but, you know, in reviewing movies, oftentimes I've been the one to say, hey, you know, a movie is kind of sucky for X reason that male podcasters just don't notice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, one of the things that we really want to get across is this isn't a podcast by women for women. This is a, bo- a podcast by women for everybody. We want to yes. have a conversation with men about these films. And from time to time, we may even have a male guest, but... Um, you know, we really want to open up a different avenue of conversation about film, about the industry, about everything that is related to it from a female perspective. Exactly. So I guess that opens up the the panel to kind of throw our credentials in terms of who we are and what we bring to the podcast. Um, I am a freelance I guess I say freelance pop culture essayist. Um, I've written for a bunch of sites. You can kind of, you find me everywhere. I'm on Remezcla and Paste and a bunch of other places, Film School Rejects. Um, and I run a classic movie podcast called Ticklish Business. So uh, I I kind of bring uh, charisma and obsessive love of the male celebrity. Um, I'm usually the lecherous one, I think, um, on most <laughs> podcasts. And that gets me in trouble, and I'm okay with that. Um, Karen, what's your, your background? Well, I started off just as a personal blogger, and occasionally I would talk about movies and TV shows that I liked, and at some point a couple of years ago, I started writing for Award Circuit, and which is a great film and entertainment site. Um, and, yes, it is. Thank you. And um, <laughs> my role there actually has expanded in the last few years, and so I'm on their podcast now, I do news, I still get to do reviews and things, but um, it's really been a great avenue for me because now I go to festivals, and I'm really involved with people on Twitter and it's just opened up a lot of um, 
my view of just film in general. So now I, I love to talk about all things film and television, especially when it pertains to Sterling K. Brown or Tom Cruise. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the Tom Cruise thing, but I can definitely <laughs> support the Sterling K. Brown thing. Um, Lauren, what about you? Uh, well, I originally started out as a film student. I've got a degree in film studies from NYU, um, a master's degree. And then I began writing for different film blogs. I run my own blog, which is basically anything that I want to write about that kind of doesn't pop up anywhere else at uh, suddenlyashotrangout.com. And then I've also written for various other websites. I still write for We Got This Covered. Uh, and particularly in the last couple of years, I think I've gotten angrier and angrier about the male-dominated nature of film criticism and film critique and this just desire to, to actually get female perspectives out there, to get feminist perspectives out there, and to be like, hey, maybe the cishet white male thing is not the only perspective that we should have on movies, both behind the camera and commenting on them. Yes, I love Lauren's angry tweets on Twitter. They are <laughs> so awesome. Uh, Kimberly, what about you? I started out as a film student as well. I was a... Film studies, film studies master's degree at CU Boulder, and that kind of jumped me and dropped me into film history. I looked at a lot of feminism in 1950s and 1960s cinema. It was probably the best four years of my life. Since then, I've been doing the blogging thing myself. I have my own personal blog, KimberlyCPierce.com, but my primary home's been Geek Girl Authority, where I'm the jack of all trades for them, doing a lot of classic film write-ups, more than my fair share of obituaries, um, everything from Agent Carter to feminist write-ups on classic film. Kimberly is living the, the life that I wish I had, because um, <laughs> I, I am a poor, uh, underpaid, uh, overworked classic film uh, fan, so it's, it's great to hear Kimberly is uh, a, also an aficionado of classic cinema, and I'm not the only weirdo. Um, so yeah, I like that's, it, too. That's true. That's true. I think we can all say we appreciate classic cinema, which is good. So I figure the best way to break the ice uh, for the listeners and for us is to do a little segment that I'm tentatively call, calling what we've been watching lately. Mostly, I don't see I don't know if this is going to become a regular thing, if anybody listening likes it. Yay. So what is one thing that we've watched this week that's not our, our main movie review? Well, last night, I actually, speaking of classic movies, went to the Fathom Events screening of E.T. with my Oh, mom. okay. And I've seen it on the big screen a couple times before because I am old enough to remember when it came out the first time and the second time. But uh, it was really fun revisiting it up on the big screen again. It was so, ugh, just such a treat. I love that movie so much. It makes me cry every time. I feel bad because I saw E.T. late in life. And I feel like I missed something. So I, I sat there and I said, oh, this is good. That's all I got. Like, I felt like I, I was missing a piece of my soul just because oh, I don't know. Sad. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> I don't know. I think that, like, for me, I definitely grew up with it. I was five when it came out. And then when it was re-released in 1986 was right when my parents' divorce was finalized. So it particularly oh, no. hit home for me huh. because I was living with my mom most of the time. And... So, yeah, it was just, it just kind of hit my life at exactly the right time, you know, and it, so it's always just been something that's been part of my, my 
that's actually one of the things that inspired my love of film was that movie. So. Kimberly, what about you? I've been, this is kind of a random one. I started a season one rewatch. I've been doing a lot of TV lately of The Blacklist, the NBC show, partially because I, there's some, you know, journalistic reasons behind it too, but mainly just my shameless schoolgirl crush on James Fader primarily. <laughs> um, last year, Megan Boone, the star show, had been doing some interest, making some very cool statements I thought on Twitter about her character and just trying to make a stand for her character in the very male dominated, you know, over the show. And I wanted to kind of jump in and take another look at that show because I had fallen off a number of seasons ago and really wanted to get back in it for a while. Okay. Uh, I just want to jump in and say that I second the James Spader thing. Like, yes. <laughs> I can't watch, I tried to watch that show and I couldn't get through it, but I have this weird crush on him that I've had forever. Like even when he was playing really despicable people and it's a little disturbing. Oh, I've had it for so long, I can't explain it either. See, I I will agree with you. I, but see, I'm only a James Spader fan from like the 80s. (laughs) So for me, when I watched Pretty in Pink for the first time, which is another movie I saw late in life, and I despise that movie purely because Ducky is the worst character ever conceived (laughs) by a person. (laughs) I was sitting there thinking, dude. Spader would totally walk off with Molly Ringwald. Like, there's no way. There's no way poor Andrew McCarthy would stand a horse chance in heaven. But of he getting hit Molly on her Ringwald. and she turned him down. That okay, Molly Ringwald's thing. a liar. Okay, <laughs> come, on. come on. Okay, uh, Lauren, what about you? Uh, actually, uh, this weekend filled in a gap in my film education. I saw Mildred Pierce for the first time. It's so good. It is so good. Oh, and it was, I love film. I love film noir, but it's been one of those that, for whatever reason, I just always missed. And so I was finally like, okay, I'm, I'm going to watch Mildred Pierce. And I loved it. Uh, it was one of those movies that about halfway through, I was like, you know, this woman, all of this woman's problems stem from the existence of men. And so if the men would just go away... Everything would be fine. So that was my takeaway from Mildred Pierce. I oh, I we love need to do an entire episode about how things would have been fine if the men would just listen to the women <laughs> or go away completely. <laughs> just, yes. just stop and go away. Because all of those men, like she's got three, at least three men operating around her and all of them make life so much more difficult for the women in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Anne Blythe is still alive. Who, she who is. Plays yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, which I love. Uh, I recommend. I think the mini series is just as good that Todd Haynes made a couple years ago with Kate Winslet. It's it's pretty much the same story. It's just a little bit more. Obviously, they can show like nudity and sex and all of that, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's really beautifully filmed because it's Todd Haynes and uh, Kate Winslet's really good. And Guy Pierce is just sex on a stick in that movie. Um, and Evan Rachel Wood makes Anne Blythe look like a small child. I mean, she's just so villainous. So for me, what have I been watching lately? I've been watching a lot of shameful things that I hate to admit on a public forum. But, um, okay, I've been kind of what I call speed binging The Walking Dead, and I'm only watching the first three seasons-ish for reasons um, that I'm not going <laughs> to disclose. <laughs> Everybody knows what they are. Uh, and I'm sitting there, and I I watched the first season when it aired, and it did nothing for me. 
I personally find, is, as I said before we recorded, I find Andrew Lincoln's face to be incredibly punchable, and I still do. Uh, so I'm, I'm into season two now. I'm kind of just speed reading through it, and it's fine. It's serving its purpose. I'm not believing in the event of the zombie apocalypse that it's not going to turn into this is the end, and certain people are totally going to become Danny McBride wearing a, a human skull on their head. Um, and I'm not buying that, like, Andrew Lincoln's going to take point in any given situation. And I really just think everybody is very mean to certain people. They don't deserve that scorn. But I'm watching it, so there you go. I am a glutton for punishment. Just wait Would for you the want... beginning of the rictatorship. <sighs> <sighs> By that point, can I leave? Is that... <laughs> You'll be I already know so sucked in. Oh, I doubt. I, I severely doubt that. I am very fickle. Um, when I go through my, my quote-unquote celebrity binges, I am swift and I am I am merciless. So I just <laughs> go through everything. And then I feel really bad about myself afterwards. It's like a relationship in a way. Um, I just feel really horrible that I've done it. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm at this week. <laughs> I'm so um, glad I'm not the only one who does that. Fast oh. and merciless. <laughs> I, that sums me up perfectly. Yeah. Which, which you all don't even want to hear what I'm going to be watching next week. Because my friend and I are actually getting together to have a certain film festival that's going to involve, I'm pretty sure, watching utter garbage for about two and a half hours. And The Wolf of Wall Street, which should be fun. Um, but the rest <laughs> of it's going to be crap. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sick puppy when it comes to, to people. So let's get into some movie news. Um, so let's get the easy stuff out of the way because we got a lot of things that it could take for longer. But since we are at the end of September, almost uh oscar season is around the corner and the first screener supposedly that was sent to the academy is logan so that seems surprising do we think we're gonna see logan at uh the awards in any way shape or form i would say text only my first yeah. thought when i heard that was the first screener was oh that's so cute <laughs> yeah. bless their hearts karen does not sound optimistic <laughs> i yeah, think that- yeah, I think some text, but I think that's it. And anybody who, I mean, I I keep getting messages and things that people are just like, no, see, look, they're campaigning, which means Patrick Stewart's getting an Academy Award nomination. You can like, campaign all you want. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. Deadpool campaign. I, I yeah. kind of thought it, it'll have a similar showing to Deadpool. There'll be some nominations, but it came out too early. And ultimately, it's still a superhero film. It came out too yeah. early, and there are other higher-profile superhero movies that came after it. Exactly. Yeah, I I don't see this going anywhere. Um, I'm I'm very surprised the first screener of the year was not Get Out, which is what I would I mm-hmm. thought was going to be. Yeah, um, that would be great. I I'm think sure they're waiting happen. on that one though. I think they're they're gonna hold off just a little bit so they come well, in at the right time. Because if memory serves, they were doing Academy screenings of that in like April. Uh huh. Yeah, so... but I think they want to. Uh... Like, you have to be really strategic with when you send that out because you don't want too many things to come after it so that it gets forgotten again. Right, right. So I don't think we're going to see Logan make much of a play. I applaud it because it is still probably in my top ten. I haven't looked at my top ten of the year so far, but I I remember it being up there. So I'm a big fan of Logan. I don't know if if we're all in agreement. I I really love Logan. That's a good film. It's just uh, it's very hard to see that as being a serious Oscar contender in any sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, That's like for either, as well. for the, either for the performances or for the direction or anything else. And it's it's a really 
excellent R-rated action movie and takes itself very seriously and it does it well. But that's that's very rarely enough for for Oscar contention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, genre pictures and like blockbusters just we all everybody wants the Dark Knight syndrome, you know, where that's big yeah. enough to to make best picture and that never happens. You know, I just the the way the academy is skewed, it's getting better, but it's still predominantly I think what over 40 white male. Right. Yeah. So they're not really going to be going for Logan. And at this point, a movie in February or March, whenever Logan came out, it's going to have to do yeah. a lot of work. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I hate to say it, I don't think that they're going to go for Get Out either. Uh, it's, a horror, it's a horror film. It's from a first-time director. No really big stars. It's it's a brilliant film. I think that if the, if any film gets it, it should be that film. It's one of the most deserving films of the year. But I it's to genre it's dependent on its genre and as a result of that i I don't think that they're going to go for it i thought it had a a pretty decent shot at a screenplay nomination until the big sick came out ah and i feel like i still need to see that kind of knocked knocked the wind out of get out sales i still need to see the big sick i've heard so many good things oh you'd need to see it i that was one of my favorites of the summer i'd say Ooh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta see it. So let's get into some trailers. Only one big trailer came out, and I'm pretty sure that if we talk about it, I'm gonna get roasted on Twitter again. Um, the trailer for Red Sparrow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so hopefully everybody gave it a cursory glance this week. But okay, let me preface some things. I am not a Jennifer Lawrence hater. I know people on Twitter assume that just because I said that she was relatable, that that means I hate her. I, I don't know how that that one word equates hate. But apparently it does. Um, I don't hate Jennifer Lawrence. I, I think she is perpetuating a persona that is making her come off as unlikable. And the, her film work is not in ratio to her acting performance, if that makes sense. She's making, sense. yes, she's making movies that are not worthy of her talents and it's making her look like a bad actress. So not everything mm-hmm. not everything an actor does is gold okay i love oscar isaac i will be the first to tell you not every movie he's made he's good in okay so so red sparrow based on a book based on a book series i've read the book i tried to read the book i do not often abandon books i stopped reading this book it was so goddamn boring and it's evident that it's written by a man so like it's a lot of description of the character's body and, you know, her sexuality and all of this. So that leads us to the trailer, which is her, which is her and Joel Edgerton. And the book and the movie, I'm assuming, have the same plot. She is a former ballerina who gets hurt and is essentially recruited into being a KGB, like, sleeper agent. And she falls in love with a guy who is also... It's like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, only American Russia. That's at least what I read on the book jacket. I didn't even get that far because I was just so bored. But we don't really get a whole lot of the plot in the trailer. It's just Jennifer Lawrence being talked about. The trailer seems so goddamn boring, too, just like the book. I, I think it'll be... A fun movie, but she's really going the Angelina Jolie route in a way that does not, again, match her skill set. You don't really get anybody else that's in the cast. Charlotte Rampling's in there, and I found out Jeremy Irons is in there, which made me think, mm-hmm. oh, so it's just an Assassin's Creed reteam. Ordinarily, I'd be okay with that because Charlotte Rampling and Jeremy Irons are the best part of that movie. But I, I don't know. What do we? What do we all? What do we all think about the trailer? I guess just the trailer. Uh, it, it looks like Black Widow that is not Black Widow. That's ba- I mean, that's how it, it comes off. That was the exact same thought I had. Well, I was 
it felt like wasn't there sequences felt like they were almost straight from was it Avengers Age of Ultron where they start yeah. where they kind of go into Black Widow's story a little bit yeah, yeah it's like, also was this girl in the and and she was taken by the Russians and she's trained to be a seductress slash assassin it's just it it's stupid it's just stupid it looks stupid it also looked like salt it, that's why i got the yeah. angelina jolie comparison it looked like salt and salt is not a good movie i don't think it's a good movie um but that lauren brings took the words right out of my mouth why is there still no black widow movie yeah, obviously because they made red sparrow <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well yeah i mean i've i remember after she was introduced in was it iron man 2 yeah yeah I remember there was a lot of talk about, like, hey, maybe we'll get a Black Widow movie. And then it, they didn't announce anything. And then Avengers came out, and it was this huge hit, and she was awesome in that, and still nothing. And then they totally, I don't know if they ever planned a Black Widow standalone film, but then they, they jumped they, into they, Captain Marvel. And so it's like, that's uh-huh. great, but we're all still asking for Black Widow. Like, I think we're all still asking for a Storm movie, too. So yeah, True. Yeah. <laughs> Marvel is sinking a lot into that Captain Marvel movie, hoping that, I mean, you've got Brie Larson in there, and that seems to be, for the last, I'd say, year at least, all of their marketing has been, and all of their speeches and their convention hype has all been gearing up towards that as their first kind of female-led superhero movie. And I'd really, I'd love to be a fly on the wall of discussions just to hear how Wonder Woman changed things and how Wonder Woman affected things. Uh Yeah. Well, and it leads me to my my next thing, which is female spy movies always irritate me because we've we've thrown out a couple. Black Widow, Souls, go back to La Femme Nikita. Female spy thrillers are usually just an excuse for a male director to put a woman in hot clothes and then have her have sex and then kill somebody as like, oh, progressive. (laughs) And and I always find that to be very reductive because if you've read about some of the, you know, and I'm a weirdo, so I've read about, you know, when the government created sleeper agents, they were doing it in America. You know, the stuff that women were doing, yes, there was sex involved, but there was so much more to that. I mean, they had to be physically athletic and they had to be incredibly intelligent, able to hold on these conversations and speak multiple languages. It wasn't just we're recruiting some chick off the street because she's got a great rack and we're going to put her in a spy position because we think that some guy is going to be so over, you know, joyed by her boobs that he's going to spill government secrets. Um, Well, I think that it actually speaks a lot more to what they assume about the audience than a misunderstanding of female spies. I think it's that they assume that the only people interested in going to spy movies are men. And so they make, female spies for a male audience and not for a general audience. And I'm sorry, but I've seen almost every James Bond movie. I love spy movies, you know, they're fun. And I want to see a female spy that is, you know, a badass, but can wear actual clothes once in a while. Exactly. I don't want to see Jennifer Lawrence in a cutout swimsuit for no reason. Well, that trailer, that trailer had all of the problems that were just jumping into it. Just my ears is I, my ears perked up when I saw it because all of the gender studies work I used to do in school were the entire thing was narrated by was it Joel Edgerton's character right and 
We're mm-hmm. entirely from his perspective. We're entire. We're simply watching her. Yeah. It, that was plain and simple. The problem with female, you know, female-led spy movies. That's what they turn it turn it into. Well, to go to go back towards gays. I mean, keep in mind when when Casino Royale came out. Every woman I know went and saw Casino Royale because of the money shot of Daniel Craig coming out of the water in that swimsuit, which itself was a kind of a gender swap take on Ursula Andress in her swimsuit yep. in Dr. Yeah. No. Exactly. So women are totally okay with objectifying, as long as you objectify both genders. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, well, and, and it does, oh, but I, I was just going to say, it does shift, it shifts the power because you're you're suddenly like, oh, Men can be looked at in that way, and every once in a while, even in the Sean Connery James Bond, you get that perspective of exactly. women yeah, looking do. at Sean Connery and being like, "Oh, he's a very attractive man." You know, you have you have money shots basically of him walking around without a shirt on and stuff like that, and it always the power dynamic always shifts back to him. Mm-hmm. Um, those are incredibly sexist, mis- misogynist films, but there's every once in a while there's an edge of that and uh and you get that a little bit more in the new craig films i was also going to mention my personal favorite the avengers uh from the 1960s yes where you've got we've got really badass women spies who are objectified to a degree but are also incredibly powerful incredibly intelligent incredibly capable and very often you know best their male counterpart who looks at them and goes like these girls are awesome and i love being around them diana rigg constantly tops my list of my favorites i was raised on old avengers days and emma peel is such an incredible character just how they've how they how she portrayed it how it was constructed she take it's I'm, I'm speechless on it because it's one of my favorite shows well we have until uh march 2nd that's when red sparrow comes out and just for argument's sake this is directed by francis lawrence uh not related to jennifer lawrence um who did the hunger games movies with her um and it's got a script by justin hape who you might know is the guy who co-wrote the lone ranger so Oh, oh, yeah. March is going to be interesting because we've got this, and we've also got Tomb Raider coming out with Alicia Vikander. Which I'm a bit more excited for, if only because I love Alicia Vikander, and I know she can be an active character. Mm-hmm. But I'm still worried that she's going to be just in a tank top, rolling around on the ground. I mean, I, I have a soft spot for the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider. If only because it has Ian Glenn as the bad guy in it. But... I, I don't know. Uh, Alicia V. Candor's Tomb Raider, I, I have the same reservations I have about this. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's interesting to have two big female-driven action films in the same month, let alone in the same year. Exactly. And if they both fail, they're going to be all women don't want action movies or something. They're going to come up with some stupid yeah. reasoning. Of course. Well, but they can't do that anymore. I mean, we've already, Wonder Woman has kind of disproven that. It has to have. Yeah. Please God. Well, the top two grossing movies of this year so far are Beauty and the Beast and Wonder Woman, both female-led. So, well, it did. Make, Women it go did, to the movies. That's right. It did make me ask an interesting question because people were talking about with the success of it. Does this mean that oh, people want more more creative horror movies? And they're all no. Hollywood's thinking is just going to be we want more Stephen King movies. So I have no faith in sure. Hollywood. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, they're going to so, go the way they no, think I mean, the that, market is going. So. So we have to, as women who are write about movies and cover movies and often are placed in close proximity to 
uh, other film critics of, of other genders, um, we have to talk about what's been going on lately with the Alamo Draft House. And for most people who don't know the story, this started last year. There was a, a male film critic uh, by the name of Devin Faraci who had been accused of sexual assault. Um, he did not deny these claims. And he was a managing editor of a site called Birth Movies Death um, that is owned by the Alamo Draft House. And supposedly was everybody has was told that he was stepping down from his position. And that was supposed to be the end of it. Um, what came out a couple days ago that the head of the Alamo Draft House, Tim League, was saying that Devin Faraci was going to be brought back on to uh, to run to, I guess, work at the uh, draft house in terms of their their day to day and as editor and all of that, which a lot of people that worked for the Alamo draft house by surprise because they had not been told of this. People were very, very angry. Um, and it started this whole thing about how it was once again supporting the the victimizer, not the victims, because the, the victims who had accused him had not been told that he was going to be back to work. And then it came out that the draft house had been putting him on the payroll for less than a month, less than a month after he had quote unquote resigned and was still pulling a paycheck, was still going to events. Uh, and only recently he has been allowed, I use that with air quotes to resign permanently. And Tim Lee has a shit ton of dance control to do. We bring this up because, you know, we are all exposed to horrible things that happen on the internet, usually directed at us. But we also work in close proximity with a lot of male critics. And this, when this happened, at least, it opened a powder keg against other male critics who had been accused of harassment, either sexual or, um, you know, mental. Um, I can tell you from personal experience, I have, know a couple critics, men who were psychologically so damaging to me that it was insane. Um, and, one of them was named after this whole Farachi mess came out. Um, so what's what's our thoughts on this whole thing? I don't even know where we can start in, because this is just such a clusterfuck. Well, I just want to say that, Lauren, I have valued your uh, insights on Twitter. So I think you should probably <laughs> yes, take the yes. reins on this. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I started off just being very, 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 very angry. You know, I never met Farachi. I don't know him, but I just remember when all of this happened, the sense of anger and betrayal and everything that went with that. And and part, I mean, part of my anger now, this time, this time around, is is the hypocrisy of Tim League and of Alamo Draft House and a fantastic fest of being like, oh, we fired him, he's gone. You know, this is someone who is not this this kind of behavior is not acceptable. And, you know, that's it for him. And then they apparently just turned around and rehired him within a month. And that's what's so shocking about it. But the other side of it is that it's not shocking at all because, of course, of course he got away. And the thing is, is that this is such a comedy of errors, like horribly gross PR 101 mistakes. He puts out this this rehiring notice. I think it was on a Friday so that nobody would notice it and said that, oh, after heavy soul searching, you know, doing friend who needed a job, even though people were saying that Farachi was still going to screenings, was still doing stuff. He wasn't sitting at home crying on his computer. And so then when people got pissed, which I, I honestly don't understand how Tim Lee did not see that coming, including the victim saying that she had not been told that he was being rehired. There was an email that had gone out that was published that was from somebody accusing Farachi after the fact 
and Tim Weeks saying, well, let's just keep this between us. So he was well aware that there were people coming forward and he was actively telling them to not say anything. So then after Farachi is allowed to resign, because, you know, you're allowed to, to, you know, walk away from your job with dignity after that, Tim Weeks sent out another Facebook message that said he's resigned. We're going to have some team building discussions. Never once apologized to the victims. Never once said that he believed the victims. I mean, it was a lot of he's sorry that this blew up in his face. It it didn't feel like an I'm sorry for genuinely making a mistake that I did not know would hurt people or that I did and I really didn't care. It was I'm sorry that now nobody wants to go to the Alamo Draft House. And this there were swift repercussions. Three billboards outside of Ebbing's, Missouri, was supposed to play at Fantastic Fest, and it decided it wasn't. And the head of Fantastic Fest quit and then went on a Twitter rant about how, you know, this was bullshit. And just, I mean, testament to this guy for going, you know, on on Twitter saying that this was horrible decision making. This was insidious. Um, I, again, I, I think we can all agree. We don't know Devin Faraci personally, but... Being women online, I always say, you know, and and being on the receiving end of listeners who don't like your opinion for being a woman. I mean, as film critics, we are told to have a thick skin and to just deal with what happens is the price of being a film critic and wanting to to be part of the game. But, you know, I like that we're finally getting people to say, hey, you know, in any profession, there's harassment. But if we're rewarding those people at the same time. We're not really protecting writers and we're not saying, no, your opinion, you know, is valid. It's just the whole cycle just disgusts me. Yeah, well, yeah. The thing that anytime anything like this comes back around, I just get so frustrated all over again because I think at what point do we finally get to where, you know, where we don't just accept this kind of treatment of people We don't just accept, I mean, I understand that, you know, for our own personal being, we have to forgive people sometimes when they do things. But at what point is it, you know, we're in an industry where Roman Polanski got an Academy Award while he is still a fugitive from justice. Uh And Mm -hmm. it's really so frustrating where we see that on a huge scale and then we have to deal with things like this at draft house and also here in la cine family just that's right i forgot to bring them up yeah and it's like these things just are happening everywhere and it's like at what point do we just when does everyone not just us as women writers but everyone put our foot down and say we're not accepting this kind of garbage anymore right and 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 i think we all agreed and and uh another uh writer who actually worked for birth movies death up until this point had said that you know we're not we're not condemning second chances we're not condemning that rehab works it's the fact that less than a month after he was supposed to have quit they hit the fact that he was secretly employed he was included on emails he was given press credentials to alamo events so if you weren't worried about the fallout why hide it i mean unless you are so it's so underhanded and it's so obvious that that they knew or that league knew at least at some level that what he was doing and his and what the choice that he was making was wrong you know and i do have to say there's a difference between saying i'm going to support my friend who needs help and i'm going to give my friend who assaulted women a job those are two different things And it goes so far beyond just, you know, not just, but it goes beyond 
sexual assault too. Like, I mean, he has a long history of terrible behavior toward all kinds of people. And well, that's the other know, thing. Yeah. And it's well documented. Everybody has known about this for years. And, you know, and that's where it's like, as much as Farachi disgusts me, I'm most angry in all of this at league for allowing mm-hmm. this to yeah. happen and to, and for trying to act like we're the ones that have a problem for not being okay with it. Yeah. And, and, that's and what I, I, I was just going to jump in and say, when will boys will be boys? And I'm sorry you were offended by that. When will that cease to be, you know, a thing that is what makes me the most angry. And January most of 20th, these. 2021. <laughs> <Yeah>. Maybe. <laughs> well, what I can say, cause I've, I've talked about, I've been very vocal about what I feel is as a, as a female critic. And I'm not saying all hashtag, not all men, you know, not all male critics are like this, but there is this concept of not understanding what, when you say you're a feminist ally, and we've seen this happen time and again with, you know, again, powerful directors like Joss Whedon, you know, oh, yeah. male, male <laughs> critics who just don't understand that their behavior is inappropriate. Um, I can, without naming names, although this person, again, was named after Farachi had come out, I worked with a, a male critic through a, uh, an organization, and it, while the abuse that I dealt with was not sexual in nature, it was very, very manipulative and very psychologically damaging to like the point where chronic messages, you know, and when I eventually wanted to assert myself, it was just some of the most just heinous, rude, insulting language ever. And when I brought this up to other people, I was given pretty much the same speech that Leek had. Oh, well, he's got personal problems and he's got issues in his life and you don't really know what's going on. Well, considering that I'm the one who's upset and stressing out over, you know, a person who is berating me chronically, I, I, I'm honestly not understanding. And that's it doesn't have to be, you know, sexual harassment, although that is something that is you know, definitely always needs to be combated first and foremost. But there seems to be this entitlement with male critics. I think just because we still outnumber them so much that, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, you can, as long as you're not sexually harassing somebody, it's okay to just be a dick all the time. Well, there's that attitude just in online film culture in general to that, that it's okay, that it's okay. You know, and, and some of the things I remember that the Farachi bullied people over, you know, just use him as an example, a lot of men do this, uh, was, you know, whether or not you liked Star Wars, Right. And and the, mm-hmm. when you when you really when you take a step back and and say what a stupid thing to bully someone about, to like harass people about, to basically say like you should go kill yourself. But he did. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, because I didn't like the last Star Wars movie. You know what at what that's insane and and I've said this before. There there's a whole there's a whole pattern in his behavior that should have been unacceptable long before the sexual assault stuff came out. And and the same is true for every other male critic that behaves like that. It's true for female critics that behave like that, but I hate to say it, it's primarily men right now. It is primarily men. Um and we should say, you know, full disclosure, there are women critics out there who support Devin Faraji. So, you know, there are, there are are many power prominent ones that I was shocked. Um, but it happens. So we will be keeping an eye out on this. Hopefully this mess is over and done with, although I have no faith. 
So let's get into some movie reviews. Um, I'm briefly, because I don't think we're going to talk about it next time, I went and saw Stronger, the Jake Gyllenhaal uh, Boston Marathon movie um, where he plays a person who who lost their legs in the Boston bombing. And I, okay, I have a double-edged sword with these movies. I am a disabled critic. Um, I'm probably the only disabled critic I know. I'm sure there are others, but I don't know any. So if there are others out there and you're listening, let me know, because I would love to have uh, other people that aren't me speaking into the void and getting pissed about these movies. But I am not a fan of, quote-unquote, inspiring real-life stories, um, because that's usually code for incredibly reductive attempts at looking at disability. So Stronger is one of several that are coming out this year. Um, There's Wonder is also coming out. There's another one. Breathe is coming out, and The Upside is coming out. So I have three more that I get to get pissed at. And I was not nearly as mad about this one, because I knew the story that it's based on. It's it's based on the life of Jeff Bowman, played by J.J. LaHall in the movie, who, who lost both his legs. And I wasn't really going to get pissed, because it's being promoted more as a patriotic movie than a disabled movie. So I went and saw this with an open mind. It's directed by David Gordon Green. I did not anticipate him directing this type of movie, but okay. It's got Tatiana Maslany, who people really like from Orphan Black, and I was fine with this. It didn't offend me, my sensibilities, um, as much as I thought. I'm waiting for Breed, because I'm going to rail on that shit when it comes out. But this is a movie that at least makes an attempt to capture able disabled audiences. I My argument always is with these movies, is that these movies are not made for disabled people. They're not made to... For a little disabled person, a a little disabled child to go to the movie theater, look at the screen and say, oh, that's me. No, these are made for and and I know you guys are all able bodied. You guys who who (laughs) will watch this and feel so bad that, you know, essentially watching this makes you realize you need to appreciate your own able bodiedness because at any moment disability could hit you and then you'll be in a wheelchair and then you're just going to want to kill yourself. I mean, that's how all these movies play out. So these movies are not made with a disabled mentality. They are made to essentially give you this false inspirational feeling. But this one tries. There are some really interesting camera angles that attempt to put Hall's character front and center, um, even once he's in a wheelchair. There's actually a custom wheelchair in this movie, which I was so happy because I get so pissed watching movies about characters in wheelchairs and they're wheeling big hospital wheelchairs. Anybody who uses a wheelchair day and night knows that that is going to be the most uncomfortable thing to wheel. You do not have those. It's custom or nothing at all. So I was happy about that. Little things that I know 98% of the theater isn't going to notice, but I noticed. And Jake Gyllenhaal's character is kind of an asshole, which I really appreciated because we're all usually portrayed as saintly. Um, You know, Tiny Tim. uh, And this guy's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dick because of his his ability, which was a bit reductive, but I was just happy that we let him be an ass. Not an entitled ass like the me before you Sam Claflin character, but like a character with flaws. So um, Tatiana Maslany is really good, too. J.K. Dillon is great. Do I want him to get nominated for an Oscar for this? No, because I really want the trend of if you play a cripple guy, you're going to get an award to die. Um, Not the cripple people to die, the trope to die. So I, I don't I don't want that to, to win um, any way, shape, or form. Just like I don't want Andrew Garfield to get nominated for the, anything this year. These movies are, are perpetuating a really ugly stereotype that I don't like. But I thought the movie at least made an effort. Like, the fact that they probably had the real guy there to tell them stuff probably helped. 
so, but my argument always is, is why do we get the same disabled movies? There is a very real reason why. Why are they all about men? Can we all name the last time we saw a movie based on a true story or not about a disabled woman whose face is not disabled? I'm talking wheelchair because we usually always mangle the face and that's supposed to be like the worst thing ever for a woman. Um, we don't get disabled stories about women in wheelchairs. Why? My argument is, is that because a woman in a wheelchair by Hollywood standards is not quote unquote fuckable. And I think that's a very valid argument. So Stronger is good if you're looking for a, a good uh, disabled movie. It's not perfect, but it's better than some. Uh, J.J. is good, so if you're a fan, you can go watch this. Um, he's practically like 98% naked in one scene, which I was sitting in the movie theater thinking, okay, well, maybe that's an apology for to Kristen directly for having to watch this. I don't know. <laughs> it's fine. It comes out next week, so if you end up going to see it, you won't waste your money, but I doubt people will remember it come you know, Oscar time, unless we really just want to give Jake Gyllenhaal an Oscar and then we nominate him and he wins for this when he doesn't deserve it. I don't know if anybody's interested in the movie, but those are my thoughts. <laughs> well, thank you. So let's talk about Mother. We got to talk about that. Darren Aronofsky's movie. Um, <laughs> yes, we have to. Sure. <laughs> Darren Aronofsky's new movie starring Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. Plot in a nutshell is... A man and a woman <laughs> are living in a house, and unexpected guests show up. That's literally all I can tell you without it being a spoiler. Um, and we're probably going to give spoilers, so I'll let everybody know when spoilers are going to happen. But what did – okay, so let's let's start with where we are as Aronofsky followers. I, I will say I was a big Aronofsky fan. Requiem for a Dream, I, I really I, – I can't say I loved because it's not a movie you like. But I appreciated it. Um, I, I really enjoy Black Swan. I, I'm one of the few people that likes The Fountain. After Noah, though, I was like, nope, this, the guy's gone off the bridge. Um, I have not liked anything he's made since. And I flat out hated this movie. Am I one of those people that says it's the worst movie ever made? No. But it's not good. It's not at all. Um, and we can explain why, but I hated this. I hated every single second of this movie. Every se uh, Well, wait, I take that back. Michelle Pfeiffer is the best part of this movie. And when she leaves, the movie just goes back to being crap. So I hated this. I hated this a lot. Um, and I was really bummed because I wanted, I was actually hoping it was going to be good. Karen, what's your Aronofsky uh, background and uh, initial thoughts on this? Well, I've never met a Darren Aronofsky movie that I enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> and that includes Black Swan. I I tend to appreciate the artistry of them, but not really the films themselves. You can't and... really watch any of them on a Sunday and feel good about life. No, that is definitely true or without a bottle of tequila. But um, I, you know, I, this one I'm really, I'm still trying to figure out exactly where I land on it. I really appreciate the ambition of it. I appreciate what he, what I think because I'm not entirely sure, but what I think he was trying to accomplish. But I don't like the overall the overall message that came through for me. So, um, what about Kimberly? I know you you saw it, right? I did. Okay. I am really hot and cold on Aronofsky. I mean, I in, I really enjoyed Black Swan. However, prior to that, my experience with him was getting Requiem for a Dream rammed down my throat repeatedly. 
in film studies 101 being told it was the greatest thing of all time and not agreeing whatsoever this movie i'm pretty much on board with you Kristen. i had a very hard time with it i was desperately go wanting i went into it desperately wanting to like it wanting to get into it but i am still also trying to process kind of where my thoughts are it was I, i've read some reviews since and i pretty much agree with where i've heard he was trying to go but it i don't know if i would watch it again and that leaves us with Lauren, who I know didn't see Mother, but I know she has thoughts on Aronofsky. Uh, I, I can even have opinions on Mother. I'm very good at having opinions on film I haven't seen. Feel um, free. Throw them out. <laughs> uh, 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 yes, no, I have very strong opinions on Aronofsky, which I only recently discovered in sort of interrogating why I was so repulsed by even the idea of going to see Mother. And I realized that I, I think I'm like a lot of people here, actually, I there is not a single one of his films that I can think of that I enjoyed. I'm the um, only Aronofsky fan up until this point. <laughs> I, 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 it, Black Swan was one of those that I, I feel like I liked it while I was watching it, and then I took a step back from it and went like, well, that was superficial and stupid. And, yeah. and I feel that, honestly, I feel the same way about Requiem for a Dream. It was, again, like, it's... Requiem for a Dream is so aggressively unpleasant that you feel like it's artistic and you feel like, oh, this must be good because no one would make a movie that is this hateful and and for it not to be like some have some deeper meaning. But actually, it is just hateful. Uh, it's a, a deeply unpleasant movie. Noah is probably one of the worst films I have ever seen. And I, I have... I, my father teaches religion in film, and I watched it with him, and both of us and, and my mother by the end of it were like, what is this? What does, like, he's just like, this doesn't even work. This doesn't work as anything. It doesn't work as a movie. It doesn't work as the telling of the Noah story. It works as nothing. This is, it's again, that it's like, this is aggressively stupid. Noah, and, and Noah always will go down in history for A, having a character named Ham, and B, well, that's having, from the Bible. I know that's from the Bible, but still, like people are like saying the name like it's a real name. It's just it made me giggle. Like the scene where you know poor Emma Watson's supposed to have a baby. I was just thinking, God, who's gonna shout out Ham during climax? Like nobody. <laughs> um, oh, and the fact that Emma Watson is in this movie playing a biblical character. Well, just all of it. I mean, and the the Jew, the Jews who are all Anglo-Saxon. Can we talk um, about the rock monster things? Yes, the rock monsters, the 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 angelic transformers, whatever. Are you saying there weren't rock monsters in the Bible? No, I've read the Bible. I understand that I use the old, you know, King James version, not the new international, but... The Lord of the Rings battles, you know, we're going to sex Noah up a bit. I, I have no idea what that movie was trying to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I hate Aronofsky, and I, I'm certain that at some point I will go see Mother, and I have already decided that I hate it, but I will also go to see it and be like, ah, this is why I hate Aronofsky. <laughs> you hate Aronofsky the way I hate Taylor Sheridan movies. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can stand by that hate. So yeah, Mother is, and honestly, I think all of it might just be one big spoiler, but I'm trying to at least jump around. I will say this movie should have been problematic to me from the minute I found out Clint Mansell didn't do the score because I maintain that 
Clint Mansell is the the glue that makes all those movies work because I can listen to the soundtrack to Requiem for a Dream or the soundtrack to The Fountain. That's like it's like great writing music. And of course he's not in this, so I was just really miffed. But we have to talk. Let's I guess we can generally talk about what we all thought the movie was going to be when the marketing came out. Of course, Aronofsky was homaging Rosemary's Baby very heavily. The movie hype or the trailers hyped this up as a horror story. Did we all think it was going to be a horror film? I said tentatively. They said the same thing about Black Swan, so I'm going to say yes, even though I kind of knew it wasn't. For some reason, I believed that it was, and it took me a little longer than it probably should have to realize that it wasn't a horror film. Based yeah. on the marketing, that was exactly what I thought, because I know I saw the trailer right before it, so I, that, and that was the first time I had actually seen the trailer. And between that and some snippets I heard, social media and the like, right before seeing it was just emphasizing, oh, so outrageous, mindfuck, oh my god. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a really intense horror movie. So yeah, everybody was saying, oh, it's so audacious, and it's really going to screw up your mind. And I, okay, so I, I remember, I saw this alone. At the, I went to the press screening by myself, because nobody could come with me, because they showed it in the morning. Um, and I sat by myself, and I'm sitting there, and about 30 minutes goes by, and I'm like, oh, no, this isn't going to be good. And then an hour hits, and I'm like, oh, dear God, please let this end. An hour and 30, and you can see in my notes that I wrote for this movie, I'm like, I really dislike this movie intensely. Um, I was just writing stuff just to write to keep myself occupied, because I was so goddamn pissed. And it's not, we can talk about, you know, what the movie means and, and what exactly, but my big issue, non-spoilery with Mother, is that, and I guess this maybe goes back to what Lauren was saying, it feels like Aronofsky thinks very highly of himself, more so than in any of his other movies, I think. It feels like he thinks, like, you can just see him in the corner with the script being like, this movie's so awesome. I'm so awesome that I came up with this. And isn't it awesome? You know, it's, and based on your interpretation, I have an interpretation of this movie that goes back to Aronofsky himself. But it really just seems like he wants you to believe there's a reason for all this meandering, but it never really comes through. I don't know if anybody else thought that. No, I I felt like there was, I felt like he definitely had something he was trying to accomplish. I I think that for me, I don't know, for me once I once it clicked into place, which is about two thirds of the way through what the movie actually was, then I was just like, Oh, okay, this is kinda cool. But then I started thinking about specific parts of it that I really didn't like, and then it got to the last like 30 minutes of it are really tedious. It's just like, once I figured out what was going on, then I was just like, okay, I got it. Like, let's move on now. And the way that it concludes, I was just like, seriously? What, yeah, what I, I knew that was going to happen. The minute it started, <laughs> I was like, it's going to end this way. Yeah, but how I should do we, have seen that coming. So. How do we feel about Lawrence and, and Bardem? They are the leads of this movie. I we We all had pointed out when it, the trailer came out how weird the age difference was between the two of them. And the movie makes jokes about that all the time. But my my whole issue always is it's the Taylor Swift syndrome. If you keep saying that I'm in on the joke, but then you're not doing anything with it, 
you're just trying to mitigate people to complaining about it. So really, when, when characters bring up, you know, oh, she's your wife, I thought she was your daughter. Yeah, but we're not really saying that it's necessarily a bad thing, considering how the movie ends with the, you know, the age difference still intact. Um, I was like, what was the point? Like, why did she have to be so much younger than him? You know, that was the thing that I was just like, and then, yeah, it just felt like beating, getting our heads beaten over with it. It was like kind of how they constantly made jokes about Aunt May being hot and Spider-Man Homecoming. It's like, I get it. There's an age difference. You don't need to keep reminding me. I can see it for myself. Right, right. And I mean, you know, I, I hate to bring up the fact that Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence are dating. I was just thinking that that same exact thing. Did that start before or after this? It started after. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. It started after this, um, which, again, makes the logic in her deciding to date him after they made this movie all the more suspect. But, (laughs) I mean, Jennifer Lawrence is fine, but she's never really felt believable as a passive presence. She's very meek and mild in this movie. You know, she's very eager to please... But there's also something to her that seemed reminiscent of, like, Renee Zellweger, almost. You know how Renee Zellweger has that ability to be like, what? You know, wide eyes. Everything is very surprising. And Jennifer Lawrence never really seems to convey that. Jennifer Lawrence always, to me, plays plays a character that seems like she's seen it all. I never get Babe in the Woods with her, ever. And that's fine. I mean, not every actress can play every type of, you know, female role. I think Natalie Portman probably would have been able to convey this a little bit better. She was the original choice before Jennifer Lawrence came in. So I think she's fine, especially in the end when it's, you know, actually intense. But I lost my mind when the first introduction to her character, literally the first scene we see her is her in a see-through negligee with her boobs prominently displayed um, in front of the camera. And she's filmed in predominantly medium or close-up. So you always get to see her face. But I was like, really, the first body shot we get is of her and her her tits? Like, really? We can't give her some dignity? And I got told by a male critic, well, she's laying in bed with her husband. You know, maybe that's what... I'm all, A, she's wandering around the house and opening the front door with her... I mean, she's naked under it. They don't have any neighbors. They don't have any neighbors. (laughs) is that there's a later scene in the movie where Javier Bardem jumps out of bed and he's naked as well, but we don't see anything. And my argument always mm-hmm. is, if you're mm-hmm. gonna have a chick show her cans, then you better have a dude show his dick. It's just equal opportunity nudity, okay? If you're gonna objectify, do it equal. Yeah, well, I want to just back up for a second and say, I personally did enjoy Lawrence's performance in this. I I tend to agree with you, Kristen, on a lot of her other work, but I don't know. Somehow this one... For me, she sold it. But, yeah, that that nightgown, I was just like, are you serious? This is the very first thing that we're going to see. And then, at the like, I kept thinking, like, just please don't actually show your naked boobs. And then it happens, and I was like, damn it, Jennifer! Like, I was so mad. <laughs> and I know she wasn't doing that by choice exactly, her character, but still, it was just like, oh, man. And it just... Yeah, it really bothered me because I agree with you. It's like, why can we just constantly be, you know, pulling off girls' shirts and, you know, like it's not like no big deal. Maybe it shouldn't be a big deal. I don't know. But why is it still like, why do we still have to protect the men and their goods if we don't have to protect ourselves? Exactly. I don't want to see Javier Burdam's junk personally. I'm just <laughs> saying it's equal. I it, If all things are equal... Kimberly, what about what about you? How did you feel about J Law? 
Well, I am inclined to agree with you. I, I mean, she was okay. She did a perfectly fine job. However, from the opening few minutes, I was sitting there going, blink twice if you're in trouble, Jen. I mean, <laughs> it. she seemed miscast to me. Because, I mean, I always I associate her with the more active, more, you know, characters with more agency, I guess, would be the best word. And I just didn't see her in this you know this meek role and then i it's the nightgown struck me too from i think she it's there's a shot where she enters the kitchen it's one of the few times where we see her almost in full body since you know we're looking at her face through 98 percent of the film and it's backlit to just the right way where you see every curve you see the crack of her ass it's just like okay guys thank you yep i see what we're doing here Thank you, Aaron Hoffman, for that. Meanwhile, Javier Bardem, you know, it's that shot where you mentioned he's contorted pretty carefully to try and keep everything hidden. It's like Austin Powers with, like, the stuff in front of his junk. I can't see anything. Um, I mean, it almost feels like Aronofsky needs to be like, look at this, guys. This is what I get to go home to every night. And... Javier Bardem just has a table, like a coffee table in front of him. Let's let's bring up Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer, who I think are the MVPs of this movie. The movie makes you believe that they are going to be in the whole movie. They're not. And it's a shame because they're the best parts. They actually, I think, embrace the, the what the fuckery of this movie. Um, Ed Harris is good, but this is Michelle Pfeiffer's time to shine. Definitely. She conveys more terror in, like, an eye roll than anything else this movie does. I loved everything about her character, that she's nosy, that she's totally judgmental of Jennifer Lawrence's character. There's a scene where they break something, and she turns into, like, a child. She's like, we said we were sorry. Like, why are you getting pissed? You know, just just watching her go toe-to-toe and, with, with Jennifer Lawrence and be just so magnetic. It just makes it all the worse when those characters depart, um, which about halfway through the film. Yeah, see, I I really loved Michelle Pfeiffer until I realized who she was and, like, who she was playing. And then I was really mad because... Wait, you know, she was supposed to be playing somebody specific? (laughs) Yeah. Save that for the spoiler section because I just think I had my mind blown. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Did you not know this? No! Okay, I well, we'll talk about that in a minute then. Okay. I just thought so... she was like an annoying, like, okay, oh, I'll, I'll no. tell you where She's I She's someone tell you... very specific, and it's someone who has been vilified a lot and very unfairly. So. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I know who you're talking about now. Okay, okay. so never mind, never mind. We'll, we'll throw that out in a second, but okay. yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, like, it's so, like, once I realized who she was portraying, then I was like, okay, now I don't like this anymore. But she was so good in, in what she was given to do. Well, let's get into spoilers, because I don't think there's any way to avoid spoilers at this point. If you don't want to know the ending um, or the twist of Mother, fast forward maybe about 10, 15, 20 minutes, um, because we're going to spoil the shit out of it. So, okay, so Jennifer Lawrence's character is referred to as Mother on IMDb, gives birth to a baby that is essentially sacrificed and eaten by this ravenous crowd that is all interested in Javier Bardem, because he wrote a poem. The baby cannibalism was a bit shocking. Uh, I could have dealt with the cannibalism part because uh, you don't actually see them like really going to town on this baby. I could have dealt with that. There's a scene with 
baby neck snapping that I was just like, oh, no, come that on. That was what got me was the just that snap was. Okay. Yeah. Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk spoilers, I think we should probably just back up and talk about like what this whole thing. Yes. Represents. Okay. So let's throw out what we each think it represents. For me, and I put this out on Twitter, and I got shot down by a lot of men, is that this is about Darren Aronofsky. This is how awesome he is, and how hard it is to be with a man who's just so awesome that everybody wants, who just, who exudes so much talent and so much charisma. And it's so tough, you know, to have a hot chick that like wants you. And then you have another hot chick that's like bitter. And, you know, sometimes you just gotta re-up for a new hot chick when you're so fucking talented and awesome and everybody wants your dick. That's essentially what I said. I, I think he wrote this script writing alimony checks to Rachel Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write a script in five days and it's going to ream her ass. Okay. I, that's the only thing I can think of, which so, just made me hate it more. Well, so when we take your interpretation compared with my interpret or coupled with my interpretation, then that basically means that Aronofsky thinks he is God, which may not be so far off. Um, yeah, well, for me, it was when I, like, okay, during the scene where there's the riots, it's before the baby's actually born, I think. Um, there's the riots happening in the dining room. That's when it clicked what was going on. And that's when I realized, and I went back to the beginning in my head and thought through everything that had happened up till then. And I realized, like, okay, this movie is, like, essentially all of human existence. And so it starts off, you've got God and Mother Earth basically and then adam and eve come along and then their sons come along and one kills the other so you've got cain and abel and all that and that was where i started to be like okay now i don't like michelle pfeiffer's character at all even though i still think she did a great job but the problem is that eve has been so vilified and mm-hmm. turned into this like horrible person when people you know study the bible that it that's why it bothered me it was like why did you do that to eve that was so unfair i would so love a movie where rachel vice plays eve in a movie directed by darren aronofsky okay <laughs> like because i would just think like the hatred would waft off of that but it would also make for really great entertainment um that, that's that's the that's the metaphor i heard a lot after the fact and that she's mother earth and you know showing how mother earth is destroyed chronically by by man um, well, and this is so where boring. it comes to, well, but, <laughs> but this is where it comes to, so like the baby is, is essentially Jesus who right. is sacrificed. And so there's that horrible scene where they're eating pieces of the body, which was really creepy when I was at church yesterday, because <laughs> my church does the sacrament every week. And I was like, I don't think I want this, but, um, but yeah, so then like what bothered me, what really got to me was the way that essentially Javier Bardem, if you do take the assumption that he is God in this scenario, that, um, especially because like, there's that line where he says, I am, which is, you know, also straight out of the Bible too. And it's just, he's so selfish and self-centered and egotistical and everything's about him. And I understand that if you read the Bible, literally, it does sound like that, but from a perspective of someone who's grown up in Christianity, it's like, no, there's a lot more layers to it. And that's what really bothered me was that he's making this film where you're supposed to dig deep and it's this whole allegory, but then 
his central people are not deep. They're very, you know, very single layer. And that's that's why I don't love this film. So, Kimberly, was... did you have a different interpretation of it? Well, it's hysterical, Kristen, that you mentioned what you mentioned. Because, uh, well, first of all, my when somebody asked me my first words coming out of this movie was that it was some self-important egotistical bullshit. <laughs> but I actually, I'm watching it through and I am terrible with allegory as the Aronofsky and Rachel Wise, that was what popped into my head the first time through watching it. And up until the end, I'm like, oh, I bet I, I said to myself, boy, I wonder if he was writing this right after his divorce or over an alimony check, because that was immediately the place where my head went. And then since we're talking spoilers, the oh, you dragged Donald Gleason into this, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Donald Gleason just kind of shows up. Seems like he got lost somewhere and then they just told him they were filming a movie and he was like, oh, okay, I got an hour. Well, they were like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Him and I believe, and the other actor was his brother, Brian, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And just having them leap in there so quick, it was like, oh, they must have been free from doing something else just well, to have them me, pop in. Their, their appearance specifically made me think, because somebody had brought up a comparison between this and Barton Fink. Which I interpret it as if Javier Bardem is a writer, and we find out later he's a poet, which I was like, well, of course he's not going to make any money. There's no fucking money in poetry, you idiot. <laughs> um, but I thought he was essentially trying to write like a novel, and that essentially these were all characters and story points that he was playing with, and that Jennifer Lawrence's character was just the audience surrogate, like being like, because the way it's shot. And Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer are, are introduced, and then all of a sudden their two sons show up, and they start literally going into this long-winded thing about wills and all this this background and history. And Jennifer Lawrence is like, "What the hell is going on here?" And I was like, "It's like a it's like a soap opera, almost like somebody's writing it to see if it's gonna work." And you could say that that's Aronofsky trying to just throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. But I mean, you could also take it as you know the the process of creating something um and creativity uh, god it just it feels so fucking pretentious to say that um and I, I, mean, I have to say i have to say just listening to you guys like discuss all these different interpretations it all sounds so it sounds like such a superficial movie yeah there's like yeah. like the the theological stuff or the aronofsky stuff or anything else like if, if it's theological that is so boring that's such a boring approach to rendering theology on film. It just, like, I can't even express how boring that is. You know, actually, uh, I mean, I get where you're done, saying. It's been done so many times. And so, I, I mean, I'm talking to someone who has not seen the film, but just everything that you guys are saying, I'm just like, wow, this is, this is the most incoherent work Aronofsky has ever done. Good to know. <laughs> well, I get what you're saying on that as far as, you know, there are a lot of more interesting ways to present theology, but I don't know. I I kind of liked the, at least the effort of it, even if I didn't necessarily love the final product, because when people try to tell stories that are biblical stories, they tend to just do a historical type of film. And so I, I appreciated that he was at least trying something different, even if it didn't necessarily work that well. 
But I, I do think that there are different ways of rendering theology on film or rendering religion on film that are not necessarily, and now we're going to tell the story of Noah or, and now we're going to tell the story of Jesus. I mean, people have talked about uh, The Matrix as being a, a very theological film in its own way and a very philosophical film also. But it's not just like, and now Jesus. At least the first the first film isn't. The, the second two kind of are. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what I'm saying by, by saying that it's boring. The allegory mm-hmm. has been, the allegory has been done and it's been done numerous times and to continue to do it in, again, in 2017 just seems like you, you didn't have any other ideas. You, you couldn't, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And, and my whole argument is, is that regardless of allegory, it's never felt less than scummy to me in terms of how Aronofsky, who again is dating the leading lady, treats her in this movie. Mm. Um, you know, she's she's presented naked. She's very subservient. There is a scene at the end where we get to watch in close up her being beaten and attacked and like she her as Karen mentioned, you know, her her top is ripped open so you ha- again you get to see her breasts and all all their uh, unfettered glory, I guess. And we get to watch her get her face beaten in for, you know, like a minute. And I was just sitting there thinking, I get the allegory, but is that enough of an excuse that you have to demean your actress? I, it just, it felt, like, exploitative to me. I agree with that. Yeah, and and I, I don't know. I, I didn't like it. Again, I won't say it's the worst movie of the year. There are worse, well, but I... Is- And this is, I just, sorry, I just, this is why I've withheld kind of deciding on how I feel about it, because this is one that I really couldn't just walk out of the theater and go, wow, I hated that, or wow, that was amazing. Like, I really needed time to process it, talk about it, and the more that I do, the more I find reasons to not like it instead of reasons to like it, which I think is really interesting. Any other final thoughts on Mother before we close it out? Nope. I think we've given Darren Aronofsky all of our time. That's going to close out this uh, inaugural edition, take two of the Citizen Dame podcast. You can contact us a variety of different ways. Um, we hope to be on uh, Podbean shortly and iTunes. You can also uh, visit us on our official Twitter, which is Karen. At Citizen Dame Pod. And we also have Facebook. Citizen Dame. Okay, and of course you can contact us individually. I am always on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Karen, where can people find you online? I am at Karen M. Peterson on Twitter and Instagram. Lauren? I am at LH Business on Twitter. And Kimberly? I am at KPR624 on Twitter. Until next time, everybody. Bye.